You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Peter Cooper. It's Tuesday, May 12th. We have Ed and Ash standing by, but first, let's go over the latest in the news. At yesterday's news conference, President Trump announced that the U.S.'s testing capacity is, quote, unmatched and unrivaled anywhere in the world, end quote, and that we, quote, have met the moment and we have prevailed. The president and others compared their success to South Korea's testing efforts, with the implication that the U.S. has done a better job. Today, the Senate had a hearing with Dr. Anthony Fauci, Dr. Robert Redfield, Admiral Brett Juar, and Dr. Stephen Hahn. Their testimony indicates that the premature reopening of the economy would lead to serious consequences. Some senators focused on the bottlenecks involved in administering the tests required to control the spread. Yesterday, the U.S. conducted over 388,000 new tests. However, public health experts are saying that the U.S. needs to reach 2 to 3 million tests per day to curb the outbreak. Admiral Jawar stated that by September, the country will be able to conduct 40 to 50 million tests a month. In other words, it may take months to get the level of testing required to move the U.S. and its economy back to normalcy as we wait for a vaccine and treatments. Also today, the Fed is launching their corporate bond buying ETF program through the Secondary Market Corporate Credit Facility, or the SMCCF. It's the first time since the 50s that the central bank will be stepping into corporate debt to keep markets afloat. The New York Fed released in a statement yesterday that the investment objective is to provide broad exposure to the market for U.S. corporate bonds. The majority of holdings will be in ETFs, which primarily have exposure in U.S. investment-grade corporate bonds. And the rest of holdings will be in ETFs, which primarily have exposure in U.S. high-yield corporate bonds. There are also other conditions that these ETFs will have to meet in order to be purchased, such as the composition of investment-grade and non-investment-grade rated debt, management style, etc., For individual corporate bonds, they need to have been issued by an eligible issuer, have a remaining maturity of five years or less, and were sold to SMCCF by an eligible seller. More details about the program will be forthcoming from the New York Fed, but they're prioritizing the purchase of more liquid and lower-risk ETFs through this program. However, it's not immediately clear that corporate spreads will actually tighten as a result of the Fed's purchasing or if the Fed's actions have already been priced in. And with that, I'll turn it over to Ash and Ed. Ash? Thanks, Peter. It's Tuesday, May 12th, 2020. I'm Ash Bennington from New York, joined by Ed Harrison, our managing editor at Real Vision from Washington, D.C. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Good to talk to you. And, you know, I'm glad that you said it's Tuesday, May the 12th, because uh, since we're in lockdown still, sometimes you forget what day it is, what day of the week it is. Like, let me tell you the story, actually, uh, since uh, I'm, I'm on that. My sister, I was talking to her, and she was. this was on a Saturday. She said um, on that day, a friend of hers got up at like 7 o'clock. She got her coffee. She sat down at her laptop. She was working literally for 45 minutes before she realized it was Saturday, and she didn't have to work at all because, you know, every single day is exactly like the day before. 
Well, you know, it happened to me actually as well uh, a couple of Sundays ago because we're all working all these crazy hours. I woke up, it was like nine o'clock in the morning. I looked at my phone and there were like three messages from you, from Jack, from some of the other guys. And I had this panic attack that I had slept in until nine o'clock on a Monday morning. I was working for about 15 minutes before I realized it too. It's not a fun feeling. <laughs> Every day is a little bit more like the one before. Yeah, yeah, we got to change that. Yes, we do. Okay, uh, Ed, so now despite the uh, light opening, this is a day where it, it just starts to feel when you're when you're reading the into the news cycle, when you're reading the blogs, when you're out on Twitter, it's starting to feel like there's a, a moment of, of uh, I don't know what the right word is here, maybe like a moment of clarity, a moment of truth. There's a feeling that's beginning to set in that some of the things that we've been talking about now for weeks uh, or months are starting to be felt more broadly. Uh, the sense that this recession is deeper, sharper, and more durable, potentially, than what we had thought earlier on. Uh, and I can tell you, I, for one, there's absolutely no joy in having been right about this. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I mean, I, the, the, the image speaks a thousand words. Uh, image that I'm thinking about, as you say that, is the one that I showed you right before we got on from Calculated Risk blog. I think that, you know, th this was the you know, this is a blog that was very uh, good during the housing crisis and is still going strong 15 years later. Bill McBride, he's the uh, the editor there. He had a bunch of, of charts that he put out just after we got the uh, jobless number on Friday. And the one that I thought was the most incredible one is the one where it shows the percentage of uh, job loss from the peak uh, and over time metric. And what you see, basically, if you look at it, that the 2007 recession was much worse than a lot of the other recessions in the post-World War II period in terms of the duration and the magnitude of job loss. But it's just a straight line down for this particular recession. And so if you look at this uh, recession and you compare it to the other ones, the concept that you could get a V-shaped recovery is pure pure fantasy land. It's never going to happen where it's an order of magnitude higher. I mean, then other than the 2007 recession, think of the double dip, the 80-82. You know, you're looking at a, uh, um, you know, an order of magnitude that's like 14 times more in this recession than in that recession. It's, it's just off the charts crazy. Yeah, I'm looking at the same chart right now that you sent me earlier in the day, and it is just, it's nothing short of devastating. And when you talk about the fantasy of, uh, of the V-shaped recovery, uh, something that we've uh, both been saying seems incredibly unlikely to happen. You know, the thing that strikes me looking at it just visually, and I think it's probably running on screen right now, so you can, you can do this uh, at home as well if you're looking at it on a screen and not on a podcast. It's extraordinary to me that the down leg is not V-shaped. By which I mean, it's not slanted at a 45 degree angle. If you look at the other recessions, they're not quite exactly 45, but you get the idea that they generally slope gently down, even mm -hmm. dramatically down, but it's a slope. This is just a vertical line. Uh, Nur al-Rubini a couple of months ago with me in an interview for Real Vision uh, on an interview that we did said, uh, this is an I-shaped recovery, straight down, <laughs> vertical bar. Right, that, that, that's what it shows. I mean, that is what it shows. They have a number of different ones. I think that's the one that, that I found the most compelling of the four charts in that particular um, in that, that particular uh, site. And let me say, by the way, as I say that, because I'm, I'm going to use some data that I have from some other uh, 
places people have always talked about can you show me can you put a link to the stuff that you're talking about you and i we were talking about this with the rest of the group the content group how we could on a blog you know start a a, a real vision blog and we can put out you know these are the stories that we're looking at this day this is what's informing the real vision daily briefing so i think that's going to start up pretty soon and uh, we can put stories out like that so that people can take a look at them. Yeah, that's exactly right, Ed. That's such a good point too. I mean, I feel like you and I, and um, you know, and Jack and Drew and uh, and Max, uh, we are uh, we are on this, uh, and Gabrielle as well, of course. So we are on this, uh, you know, 18, 20 hours a day, and we only get on the air for about 30 minutes to have this conversation. And we're looking for a way to just try and communicate some of the other things that we're doing, and some of them, some of them, uh, especially the visual things, the charts. Uh, some of the diagrams are really best seen uh, in something that's a little bit more static than uh, than a video. So we're looking forward to getting that out to everyone really soon. Yeah, and uh, you know, I think it's a good segue into what I'm thinking about, and and that is is uh, I'm thinking about the near term. Uh, you know, the uh, the uh, to be honest, I'm somewhat uh, I'm surprised at how negative the 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 sense that we're getting already is about this un, this unlocking that is is uh, leaving lockdown because the the numbers uh, on the Dow I mean it could be that it's a pure technical uh, factor but uh, you know numbers were down today and you would think that uh, people would say okay so now we're leaving lockdown now we're ready for the V the V that they were talking about that's not going to happen. But instead, what we're seeing is 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 that asset uh, prices are are starting to fall, and people are starting to believe what we were saying before, which is that it's definitely not going to be a V. It's not going to be a U even. It's it's going to be at the at the best an, an L, and it's going to be it's going to take a very long time for that to happen. So you know, one of the things that I'm looking at is over the near term, what does the release from lockdown look like, and what can we say about over the longer period of time, how likely are we to see another lockdown or uh, are we going to continue in this lockdown? So that's kind of where I'm at right now in terms of thinking about the, the near term future. Yeah, and I'm thinking about a lot of those points, too, just to put some numbers around it uh, for those tuning in. Uh, S&P 500 off about 2 percent on the day to close down to the 2870 level. Right. Uh, and I, I think that's below the 61.8 uh, Fibonacci retracement. I still think that's above the 50% retracement level. So we're still hanging in there at the, at those levels. Now, uh, it's, it's extraordinary, me... isn't it? How those numbers, those low, the 50% and the 61.8% retracement levels, or something that we just keep snapping back to resistance or support. Yeah, I mean, it just goes to show you that, especially when the algos take over that uh, they have a tendency to, to circulate around certain areas, uh, moving averages and, and, and support levels. And you know, there are buy-sell signals that will give you a, a, a snap to that area. But as soon as the data come in, uh, you know, hot and, and heavy, when you break those support levels, then suddenly you're going to see you know, the bottom fall out. And that's you know, in an algo-driven economy, what you'd see in financial markets. Um, I think, you know, in terms of the short term, there's the real economy and then there's the financial economy. Today is the first day that the Fed uh, said, OK, we're actually going to go and buy those ETFs. Before it was that we're going to we're thinking about buying. Now they actually are buying the ETF. So they're buying the corporate bond ETFs, high yield, 
and uh, and investment grade. And I think that we're going to see the dichotomy there between those because they're not putting a floor under high yield. They're not looking to bail out junk. They're looking to add liquidity. So I think that a lot of what we're seeing in terms of asset markets is a representation of understanding that liquidity can only go so far, that we are into the insolvency phase, and that uh, not all people can be winners. Yeah, it's such an interesting point. I know you've thought about this a great deal, Ed, so I'd like to ask you a follow-up. Tell us a little bit more when you think about this. What do you think the potential to stabilize uh, some aspects of capital markets are with this? And also, and I think you're touching on this a bit, what do you think the limitations are on a practical basis? Yeah, so let me take the second part of that first and, and use it as an example, as a segue into some uh, articles that I've been looking at. I've been looking at uh, the Belgian economy in, in particular. Uh, the Belgian economy, Belgium's been fairly hard hit, uh, but they're opening up already. And the question is, is what does the economy look like now that Belgium's opening up? And there are two or three, there are three articles that I'm looking at in particular. The first article, this is from a, um, a newspaper called De Tide, which is a Dutch language Belgian newspaper. And it says here that over a quarter of a million uh, Belgian uh, jobs are at risk as a result of the coronavirus. So even though uh, you know the social safety net in Europe is, is better than it is in the United States, what they're saying is 250,000 jobs are at risk for going away poof over the long term, not just a short term kind of thing. The second article I think that was interesting was is they, uh, they said that retail cannot overcome a second lockdown. Now, this is the article I found the most interesting, to be honest, because what it basically says is, is that 9% of uh, you know, small businesses are saying that they're going to go to the wall without a doubt. Uh, and and this is you know after lockdown is being released, and what the article points out in the end is is that basically if we try to lock down the Belgian economy again, retail as a sector is is going to go poof. The, these numbers are going to go even worse. So the the sort of the conclusion that I have from that and various other things is 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 that. For the most part, we're in a, a permanent post-lockdown scenario. Uh, we, we can debate about this in a second, but the conclusion I'm coming to is, is that the medicine was so severe in terms of the lockdowns that we've already had. Now that we're coming on the other side, I think that it, you'd have to have um, the, the case counts, the deaths increased by a factor of 10 to get people to go back into lockdown because the economic outfall, the, the fallout of that would be so great. And this is what this article is saying in Belgium, that the retail sector would be on its knees. It would en masse go bankrupt if we went into lockdown again. We can't do it. And you think that's a leading indicator uh, or perhaps a, an object lesson for what could potentially happen in the U.S. as well? Yeah. That, so I, I'm thinking of it in terms of, OK, so Belgium has a fairly good uh, test and quarantine measure that they're looking at going forward. Uh, the numbers are falling. In the United States, the numbers are rising in a, a number of different states, including the state where I live in, Maryland, because I'm just outside of D.C. Uh, and the question is, is what happens 
if those numbers keep on rising. I think Belgium is a leading indicator for what's going to happen in the United States. There's no way, when you look at that calculated risk chart, there's no way, no how, that we are going back into lockdown, given that. And so the question becomes, over the short to medium term, what does that mean for the economy? And the answer that I come up with is, is that you're going to see a selection of industries and of countries in terms of performance based upon the no, uh, the no second lockdown uh, paradigm. That is, is, is that the United States, uh, where you're going to see a, a spike in, uh, in case counts, you're going to see uh, the economy fall flat in those areas where you see that spike. A place like Iceland, where they are testing like crazy, you're not going to see a, uh, a second case. In fact, actually, I was talking to someone online earlier today about Iceland as an example in terms of their tourism industry. And apparently, they're prepared to give every single person who comes into the country a coronavirus test as soon as they come in. And, if, and apparently, they can do it on the fly so quickly that they can decide, uh, they can uh, analyze whether that person has coronavirus or not and allow them into the country or not. And they are thinking that their tourism industry is going to be saved as a result of that. So these are the kinds of things I think that are going to play out over the medium term. You know, it's so interesting. We've been having these discussions and thinking in in, uh, in uh, sort of similar ways and some different ways. Not to play devil's advocate here, but let me just read something to you that I think is an important uh, counterpoint that at least gives a sense of the the position that we seem to be in right now. And it's starting to feel like the the classic case of the irreconcilable force meeting the immovable object. This is testimony given today uh, before the United States Senate by uh, Dr. Uh, Anthony Fauci, Tony Fauci, the White House uh, advisor uh, on coronavirus, uh, especially and uh, head of the, I guess, national uh, uh, immunological, he's head of a senior medical policy person, the person here in the U.S. who's taking the lead on advising the White House on coronavirus. This quote is devastating. Quote, if states or cities or regions in their attempt, understandably, to get back some form of normality, disregard the checkpoints that we put in our guidelines about when it is safe to proceed in pulling back on mitigation, I feel that if that occurs, you will trigger an outbreak that you might not be able to control. And he goes on to say, quote, that this will lead to, and I quote, suffering and death that could be avoided, but that could even set you back on the road to economic recovery because it could almost turn back the clock rather than going forward. That is my major concern. Yeah, I mean, that's my major concern. That's that's where I'm coming out of this is, is, is that, you know, as I said yesterday, I feel like the consumer leads government. That is, is the consumer is telling you that people on the streets are telling you they want to leave lockdown and it's incumbent upon you to have as a government to have the systems in place to deal with that. And if you don't, then the, the response is going to be fear and panic and it's going to collapse your economy. And that's really what we're talking about right now. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about a situation in which the governments aren't prepared, the testing's not there, the protocols aren't in place, and the case counts go up, the deaths go up, and then the economy shuts down purely because a consumer-led shutdown is happening. Right. You know, it, it reminds me, you and I and lots of our uh, viewers and subscribers who have had uh, training in economics think a lot about trade-offs. We think constantly about trade-offs. But it seems as though some of these uh, trade-offs uh, are just, you know, they're, they're unacceptable uh, 
they're unacceptable outcomes on either side of the trade-off. And by attempting to reduce X or increase Y, uh, sometimes you get neither result. Yeah, uh, I, I would say that that's the case. And you know, by the way, let me say that here's the uh, here's what uh, Jokul Solberry is telling me on uh, Twitter. He's saying that coalition ministers, this is in Iceland, uh, just announced they will provide tests for everyone at the only international airport. If negative, they can skip quarantine effective from June the 15th. And his his supposition is it might make Iceland a hotspot for early tourism. And it, it actually reminds me to a certain degree of the dichotomy between, I saw something that Ambrose Evans Pritchard wrote in the Telegraph earlier today uh, in the UK. And he was saying that uh, it's just abominable how the UK is underprepared relative to Greece. Greece, uh, they know that their system, their public health system is not the greatest. So they, you know, uh, went all out to lock down early, get themselves in order, and they haven't had the deaths that they've had in the UK. So what does that mean uh, for, for Greece going forward? To the degree that you're going to want to go to the Mediterranean, uh, there are going to be some people because they're going to be great discounts. You're going to go to Greece over Spain and Italy. So it, it, again, it goes back to the paradigm that I'm talking about, which is, is, is that there are going to be winners and losers. And I don't think it's going to be because we're going to go back into lockdowns. It's because the economy is going to suffer if uh, if the government hasn't gotten it right. You know, Ed, when we talk about the Eurozone, we talk about, for example, uh, Greece versus uh, the UK. We talk about uh, Spain and Italy versus Germany. You know, it's important to point out that the aggregate size of the Eurozone uh, in terms of the size of the economy is roughly equal to the aggregate size of the US economy. And the population uh, in the Eurozone is about 340 million uh, versus about 328 million uh, here in the US, so roughly comparable. The reason that I make this point is that it's it's an important point to say that we see such very different policy actions uh, based on very different uh, patterns of infection, very different impact from the virus across the Eurozone. And yet, when we come to the US, we have a similar level of divergence with a similar policy response across the country. For example, that doesn't uh, take into account the fact that uh, you know the impact of the virus in Southern California versus what we're seeing here in New York City is incredibly different. We're trying to find a one-size-fits-all policy for the entire nation, uh, whereas Europe has the benefit of being able to to target it based uh, on what's happening a little bit more regionally. Yeah, uh, and uh, you know, I would add that uh, the UK is outside of not only the eurozone now, but also yeah. outside the the EU. But um, you know, I don't know what I think about that because obviously uh, President Trump, he's given the states a uh, the ability to uh, do what they want. Uh, and so you do see some differing levels of responses. I think just now we I, we heard recently that uh, Northam in uh, Virginia was actually tightening somewhat or extending the tightening in northern Virginia, which is, you know, a subset of Virginia a state, you know, in that that's the area that borders to the the DC metro area. I don't know how that's going to work, but you know, there is a degree of um, uh, you know, how can you say of uh, differentiation within the right. United States that I think is uh, is positive, but it's also it has its downsides in the sense that uh, if an outbreak happens in one place, it could easily spread to another place just because of the differentiation 
in the way that we're approaching things and the fact that we're all one country. It's not closed borders. I mean, I look at the the EU and the Schengen Agreement uh, zone as a as different because they've actually uh, you know locked down their borders. This is the first time, other than maybe the refugee crisis, where you've seen that kind of action in the EU in the Schengen Agreement zone. Yeah, and, and that picks up on that exactly the point that I was making, I think, is that you really, the ability to have a, a tailored response that's a little bit more regional uh, is really a challenge for the U.S. And, to, you know, to go back to your to your point about the uh, about the U.K. Uh, exiting um, the, uh, the European Union, uh, Margaret Thatcher is beginning to look rather prescient now, isn't she, with uh, her speech with no, no, no on uh, on joining the common currency area. Yeah, actually, you know, if you look at some of the things that she said about the common currency uh, and its deficits, uh, very much on point. Uh, I, I wish I had a, a link to one of the speeches that she had from the mid-70s, but uh, definitely we're seeing some of the negative externalities. I'm, I'm supposed to do a RV Live tomorrow with, uh, with a gentleman from Greece who is, uh, we're going to be talking about emerging markets, but we're also going to be talking about the Eurozone. And I know from having spoken to him a little bit earlier that he has a, a very pointed view about what peacetime looks like in a post-coronavirus world. Because right now, the ECB is ramping up. They're doing a whole lot of stuff. Uh, you know, maybe the fiscal rules don't apply. But as soon as you get to peacetime, you do have a problem in the Eurozone. I think that, uh, yes, the euro is, is a big problem. And uh, it's a problem that is going to be resolved one way or another, either through a closer uh, tightening or, you know, a disintegration of sorts. Yeah. And these, uh, you know, unlike uh, the ability to take policy action against a virus, for example, to impose lockdowns, but you can see the results of immediately, uh, the things like widening spreads and target two balances, uh, and it, or rather, I should say, imbalances, I guess, to put it uh, a finer point on it, begin to uh, you know spread out over time, and the impact of those are not immediately felt, but the long-term consequences are immense. Yeah, definitely. I, I would agree with you 100% on that, Ash. Um, so, Ed, what else are you looking at? So, uh, what I am looking at is, you know, I'm thinking about the rest of, uh, you know, our 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 content campaign, all the things that are coming forward. Uh, you know, Howard Marks, I, I think we're going to be talking to on uh, on Friday. Uh, the coup interview that I did is coming out tomorrow. I think the Howard Marks interview is interesting for me because he's a distressed investor. And the question is, is how does how does macro meet uh, distressed? Because distress is all about the individual situation. And then you have the macro view. Uh, you and I were talking from a very top down perspective. We're talking about you know, the near term and potentially the medium term future from a macro perspective. But where are there, uh, the, where's there the, the ability for you already to see uh, places where you can invest? Uh, think of it in the same way that Buffett is a, a distressed investor. If you think about the Washington Post, Geico, Berkshire Hathaway, every single one of those purchases by uh, Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett was a distressed investment. And I think that what we're going to see is not just, uh, you know, the negative side in terms of the economy and in terms of markets, but we're also going to see the ability for companies that are, they're, for lack of a better word, lack liquidity. They're not insolvent, but they're, they're, they're illiquid, despite what the 
um, the the Fed is doing. And that's a a benefit for the likes of Howard Marks. So I, I'm very interested to see what he has to say about that. Yeah, I think it's so, and I was talking about this with Raoul on Friday, it's so important to look at this from different angles, to understand it from the, from the tactical angle, from the strategic angle, macro, individual investments, bottom up, top down. Uh, and, and I think that's one of the things that we're so good at doing uh, at Real Vision. Yeah, and so I mean, so when I think, when you ask me, what am I looking at going forward? I'm looking forward to getting a, a different views, different cuts from different people over these next two weeks to give me a more holistic view of what this whole thing looks like. People who are looking at it from a different approach, who are, are looking at different sectors, just to give me a holistic view that helps me better understand where we are, because. You know, it's a very disorienting situation. The, uh, these are times that we've never experienced in the past, and every little bit helps in terms of understanding uh, where we're headed. Yeah, I'm looking forward uh, certainly to hearing uh, from people who see the world very differently than I do. Now, what about you and uh, and uh, Roger? What are you thinking about? Because you're going to be talking to him tomorrow at the end of European at the European close. What are you thinking about? Because you've been talking a lot about Europe just now. I know that he talks not just about Europe, but about currencies in particular. Yeah, um, Roger, uh, I'm looking forward to talking about currencies with him. I'm looking forward to hearing his view on the uh, the more tactical angles on uh, what's been happening uh, with uh, with U.S. equities. He's been uh, he's been extremely articulate, and I think uh, again prescient ahead of the time uh, ahead of the curve on this. Uh, and I'm also interested in talking to him about some issues uh, about volatility and uh, active versus passive and some of the uh, challenges uh, that uh, that arise from that. We're seeing volatility rising. Uh, we saw it rise today. Uh, so that's what some of the things I'm interested in talking to Roger about. So I was talking about that Greek gentleman, Michael Nicoletos. He's been on our platform. I don't think I've seen him on the platform since 2017. And I, what I'd love to have you talk to Roger about, because I talked to him briefly on WhatsApp earlier today, uh, is about currencies. Because wh what I'm going to ask him about, and it seems like what his view is, is, is that there's no price discovery in many different asset markets. So this is going back to the question that you asked me long, long ago, and I think I went off in the Belgian rant. Uh, you were asking me about asset markets and what he was telling me about asset markets and the ability for the Fed and other central banks to prop them up is there's obviously a lack of price discovery. And what does that mean from a valuation versus a liquidity perspective? It means that you don't get any uh, understanding about valuation. So the, the the whole thing of like fundamentals don't really matter as much as they might have mattered. Where they do matter in uh, Nicoletos's view is in currencies. So that's where I, I'm interested to hear what Roger has to say. That's the last bastion of where uh, the, the Fed and other central banks cannot manipulate uh, markets because the markets are too large. That's the release valve, if you will. And that's where we're going to see the contagion, all of the things happening in emerging markets, all of the things happening in the Eurozone. So I think that's, uh, that's an, it'll be an interesting call, obviously, with Nicoletos, but I'd be very interested to hear what Roger has to say on that as well. Yeah, I, that's that's very interesting because Rogers made those points uh, a couple of weeks ago. So it'd be great to have uh, two people discussing a, a topic from slightly different uh, angles. It'd be really interesting to see. Yeah, I, and so I'm very much looking forward to that. And uh, again, you know, uh, it's, it's as always, Ash. It's it's great talking to you. Uh, I hope 
that you're on a new computer today, a, a more robust computer, and uh, and that you're getting it back uh, back in order. It's a process, man. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Ed. You bet. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.